Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. We are on to another milestone episode. This is episode 150, and today's guest is Matt Pelega, co-founder and head of marketing at Mark43. Modern advancements in technology have impacted almost every industry, but there are still some areas that might not be modernized. As we discuss in this podcast, Matt and his co-founders found one of those industries which was ripe for disruption while they're at Harvard, and that is the public safety sector. Based on the important role that first responders, law enforcement, and public safety professionals play in our lives, you would think that they would be all leveraging state-of-the-art technology to make their jobs more efficient and effective. However, this wasn't the case, and Mark43 is building a company to solve this issue with a modern cloud-native platform for dispatch, records, evidence, and analytics. The company is backed by lots of notable investors such as Spark Capital, General Catalyst, Goldman Sachs, Lowercase Capital, Jeff Bezos, Ashton Kutcher, Tom Eisenman, and many, many others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Matt's background and how a class at Harvard led him and his co-founders down the path of starting a company, all the details on Mark 43 and how the company is building a modern tech platform for public safety professionals, how Mark 43 was able to land a who's who list of notable investors, the ways that Mark 43 has been so successful with their PR initiatives, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you have been enjoying the VentureFizz podcast, then you must leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more that people will discover these amazing stories about entrepreneurs across the New York and Boston tech ecosystems. Thanks in advance. I appreciate it. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Matt. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is great. So I'm excited to talk to you, Matt, because um, you know there's different companies that are building meaningful technology, but then there's companies that are building things that are super, super important to uh, to our well well being and safety. And that's what Mark Forty Three is doing. So we're going to talk at length about the company that you're building. But um, before we get into that, let's let's talk about your background. So. Uh, talk about your experience, kind of you know, as a child, kind of growing up. I love talking about those foundational years. Sure, I'm from the western suburbs of Chicago, and people that are familiar with Mark 43 are not familiar. We make software for law enforcement and first responders at large, and I actually didn't really have any first responders or law enforcement or police officers in my family. Um, my dad is an attorney. My mom has always just kind of been in. Um, uh, teaching and, and she's, she's a principal now. She used to be an elementary school teacher. So yeah, never really tied into um, policing by any means. Played sports growing up, was on the track team in college. But um, yeah, through I guess kind of a, a, a funny series of events, found myself in, in this world and um, all thanks to a class in the, the spring of my junior year. Well, let, let's kind of, you know, go through that. So why did you decide to uh, study mechanical engineering at Harvard? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I knew I always enjoyed taking stuff apart and figuring out how things work. Never really put them back together, which probably irritated my parents more than anything. But um, <laughs> just loved you know, disassembling stuff, understanding how things worked, and always just kind of enjoyed things from an engineering perspective and a building perspective. So when I went to Harvard, I obviously wanted to move in a mechanical engineering direction, and I was excited about Harvard too, just because they were very interested in the concept of a T-shaped engineer, kind of the Renaissance engineer, where you have depth in your engineering degree, but they also care about your gen ed studies and they care that you take writing classes and English classes and history classes and things like that. And I knew that I didn't want to devote all 
32 classes of my college career to engineering. So I got a little bit of exposure elsewhere. I think that was probably atypical versus other um, colleges that may be well known for really pure engineering. And I think that's actually been great kind of in the working world. Um, it's wonderful to be able to, be able to kind of have an analytical uh, bent when, it, when I can look at the products that we build and how we try to run the company, but getting in front of clients and that kind of stuff too. I think Harvard versed me for all those different kind of venues. So you, you mentioned this, but so, uh, so you're also captain of the track and field team. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what events did you run and, and uh, you know, what was your favorite? At, great, great question. At, um, at 6'5 and 263 pounds at my peak in college, I was not running a lot. Uh, I was <laughs> more focused on the throwing realm. So I was a hammer thrower, uh, which is actually one of the events that people probably don't know as well compared to, you know, like shot put or discus or javelin. Hammer is actually a the 16 pound metal ball on a meter long wire with a little bit of a, a handle at the end and you twirl it around your head twice and then you go into these turns and you throw it as, as far as you can. So it was awesome. I didn't know anything about it going into college. I just knew that I was going to be a thrower on the track team. And uh, the, my um, coach, Catherine Erickson at the time, just developed me into a hammer thrower and it was exciting to, to learn it. It was frustrating for the first two years, but it was an amazing capstone to be captain in, in my fourth year and um, would not have done it any other way. If I, if I could do it all over again. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. So the, um, you met your two co-founders at Harvard and they both were engineering majors as well. So, so how did the, the three of you all come together? So complete stroke of luck. The three of us were in a class in the spring of 2012, uh, again, in, in undergrad, um, our junior year called engineering sciences 96. And the goal of the class was not so much, I get, I go back to kind of Harvard and the T-shaped engineer. Um, Harvard wanted to teach its engineers, not just about theory, not just about solving problems, not just about how to do complicated math. They wanted to teach you how to work with a client because that's such an important thing in being successful after college. So this whole class was about how to work with a client, how to engage the client and how to satisfy the needs of a client. And we were very fortunate that um, the class that the, the section of the three sections that we just ended up in, and for me, the only reason I was able to be in this section was because I was on the track team and practices conflicted with the other two, we were working with the Massachusetts State Police, and uh, our goal was to evaluate this new policing model that the Massachusetts State Police was rolling out in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is Western Massachusetts. Uh, they had a really tough gang and just kind of broad crime problem, um, especially with this opioids for guns trade that went up and down the East Coast. So um, in Boston and kind of just Massachusetts at large, pretty difficult to get firearms, uh, but actually pretty easy to score opiates and heroin and things like that. Flip side, uh, other places on the East Coast, much easier to get uh, firearms. So there was just kind of imbalance of trade and you would see firearms come up to Boston, down to Boston, and then you'd see all the opiates flow out of Boston. So that was why there was such a bad crime problem. Um, Scott and I, Scott's our CEO, he had been in a class with me, two classes previously, so we just kind of knew each other. And when the group was told to split into three different groups that were going to do different kind of components of this class project, um, between me, Scott, and then my uh, other co-founders, Emmy and Flo, we all kind of had just run into each other at different parts in our, our college careers. And everybody was pretty unfamiliar with everybody else. And we just landed in kind of like what was going to be the computer science camp of the class. And the class took, again, kind of a bunch of twists and turns that led to us just starting to build more police software and less doing actual analysis on this new policing model. But um, with the four of us just kind of found each other and, and we're off to the races from there. So was this project with this, 
the state police in Massachusetts that kind of opened your eyes of like, wait a second, how, you know, they're conducting, like how, how their workflow is just so archaic. I guess, what did it kind of like expose you to? Sure. So we went in and we said, we have to evaluate this new policing model that the special projects team of the, of the Massachusetts State Police is rolling out. Is it effective or is it not effective? And we went in and we said, there's going to be some data that we need. We need uh, truancy rates. We need how much graffiti is being posted in the area of operation. We need to understand how many offenses are committed, how many uh, calls for service there are on average on every day of the week, things like that, just to do this analysis. We realized that we couldn't get at any of this data. And I think we had all kind of grown up assuming that police technology was all like all the stuff that you see on CSI and NCIS, where it's, you know, the crazy enhanced picture and license plate, you know, super duper readers and, and crazy things like that. And that's just not the case at all. I mean, policing technology is probably 20 to 25 years behind any consumer technology that you see right now. I think it's hopefully going through a little bit of the same renaissance that electronic medical records started going through probably 10 or 15 years ago with companies like Epic and things like that. But we went in, our expectations were completely blown. And we thought we grew really close to the troopers that we were working with over the course of the class too. And it was just tugging at our hearts that these people are going out into the field every day, doing risky stuff, doing challenging stuff, seeing some of the toughest parts of, of the human experience. Honestly, they're interacting with people on the worst days of those people's lives. And their technology is just it should be as important as their um, as their firearm or their ballistic vest, and it's just not treated the same way. So we said, wow, there's a complete imbalance for what law enforcement technology is and what we thought it is. So our professor was great. He said, you guys go run off in your direction. Um, Kit Parker, he said, you guys go run off in your direction. Try to build these officers, something that can help them out somehow, some way. We started off doing more like analytical stuff, social network analysis, how gangs form and dissolve and how they communicate and how they trade and share information, which was great. And we thought that was um, the real problem. But as we kind of continued chipping away at what this world of policing was, we pretty quickly realized that there were some other products that we were more interested in building and would probably bring more good to the policing profession at large. Now, did you know that you always want to start a company someday or did this just happen organically? I got to give our professor credit. He said in the class, you know, I think this could be a company one day. I think you guys could, could start something out of this. Flo, Scott, and I, we really never had any intention of doing that. We knew maybe it could go somewhere someday. We, I don't think we knew what starting a company meant. Um, I don't think we knew any conditions as to when the right time to start a company would be or why we should start a company. The, actually, the only reason that we incorporated in the first place was that we were trying to apply for some federal grants that could maybe provide some early seed funding for the company. And to do that, you'd just be some sort of uh, corporation or just some sort of incorporated entity. So that's why we ended up incorporating. Um, but it was never to say, oh yeah, we just wanted to start a company for starting the sake of the company. Later, you realize that when you need to bring people into the fold and hire them and pay them and um, actually make them part of the team to actually achieve a bigger goal than just what the three founders could do on their own, then you realize that incorporating and forming a company makes sense and it's just a good structure to do that. But we had zero intention of doing this as, as a startup and instead we're just going to work on it as a side project for as long as we could. Cause like the, I mean, entrepreneurship at Harvard, obviously it, you know, it's come a long way with, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, but I mean, the, but HBS, it's like HBS mm -hmm. really started to evolve where the investment banking and the management consulting career path started to think differently about entrepreneurship. But mm -hmm. was it similar on, for undergrads or was it not as much? It's funny at that time, 
I don't want to say Mark 43 specifically, but I think for Harvard as a whole, that was just barely the tip of the spear for, for entrepreneurship um, at Harvard. I think Harvard kind of goes through these waves and I've heard previously that, so we graduated in May of 2013, for the 10 years previous to that, um, law was really compelling and then finance became really compelling during our time there. The big thing was consulting. Consulting was really the big deal. And based on what I've heard for the last six or seven years, now entrepreneurship is kind of the thing that's very in vogue. But um, no, at that time, entrepreneurship was really nascent at Harvard. I think the iLab was a newish thing. I think a couple of classes that were supporting entrepreneurship were, were a new thing. But yeah, gosh, in the last six years, it's it's completely changed its tune. Yeah, I was thinking like, um, I know, you know, the iLab's a big piece of it now and Jody Goldstein mm-hmm. and the team there. But so just, you know, as you were starting to build this company, it just was perfect timing as well with, um, you know, all of a sudden student-led VC firms were starting to come into the fold mm-hmm. with Rough Draft Ventures and the yep. Dorm Room Fund. So uh, so Peter Boyce, who was one of the original partners of Rough Draft Ventures, was one mm-hmm. of your classmates, right? He was. He was. Yeah, Peter, uh, we, have, we have a great relationship. I just saw him two days ago, actually. And uh, he definitely played a role, a big role in kind of the, um, I think, sniffing out the opportunity in Mark 43. And he gave us kind of our first affirmation of, okay, me and some other people think this is a good thing. And, you know, can I connect you with, with other people that may be interested in becoming part of the, the team and investing? Um, so he's been, a, he's been a huge player in, in Mark 43's history. And, you know, we're, we're grateful to have him on board. Yeah, no, it's great that uh, those funds existed because it just totally uh, allowed, you know, students to really think about entrepreneurship and have, you know, a, a, it's not like they're writing massive checks, but at least it's a reasonable check to kind of get a student started on a, on an idea. So not even speaking for Mark 43, there's a lot of there's a lot of smart kids in school right now that have ideas that are just as valid as somebody that's 10, 20 or 30 years their senior um, and and a 15 or $20,000 check can be more than enough to get somebody really compelled to say, I want to work at this problem and I want to start seeing what I can do with it. Um, and I think the dorm room fund and, and rough draft are enabling that, which is amazing. So did you have to like spend time in the field with police officers to understand their workflow and kind of how they did things in the car? So um, I just have this idea that I don't know, like, like, so if you're out there in the field with the police officers, you probably saw some crazy stuff. So any, any interesting stories that you can share there? The, the, that's one of the hallmarks of Mark 43 is we spend a lot of time in the field. Way too much do we hear that people uh, solution things from behind their desk and they come up with uh, designs that, you know, is relevant and they make sense to the engineer, but not the user in the field. So we try to put our engineers, our designers, our product managers, even our, our salespeople and our growth team in the field as much as possible to appreciate what the users are going through. Um, the lion's share of it, a lot of it have, have been ride-alongs. I mean, we do a lot with making sure that patrol officers that are in the field um, really have a great experience because they're, they're the majority of the people that use the products that we're on. Um, in terms of stories, we've seen a lot of, we've seen a lot of stuff. It's, it's exciting and stimulating to be with these officers. More often than not, you realize that policing isn't so much like the, it's not, you know, this kind of cowboy mentality and breaking down doors and, and arresting people. It's, it's, actually pretty challenging and stressful even to just observe it. Um, I mean, you're going into places where they're really either places that are depressed neighborhoods or people that have tough drug problems or places that we've gone in and you, it seems like a wonderful house from the outside and people are, um, you know, they're 
there's hoarders that live there and it's just kind of, and there's, and there's kids in the house and it's just challenging yeah. stuff like that. Um, and it's just so inspiring to see that police officers, again, one out of the hundred things that they deal with are crazy, cool, fun car chases and, you know, the exciting Hollywood stuff. And it's much yeah. more dealing with these, these problems. That's not to say that I haven't been in a police car that has been going very fast to <laughs> chase somebody down. Um, I won't say anything about, you know, which department or where we were, but <laughs> that was an exciting thing. And I think we were, we were going fast enough where I didn't have time to think of what, whether I was scared or what was I going to tell my mom about this? I just had a big smile. <laughs> so that was exciting. Um, but yeah, you, it, 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 it kind of runs the gamut. And I should say too, it's not only the first responders in the field doing the, the kind of in car and in field police work a huge proportion of the people that use our products are dispatchers that sit behind six screens in a kind of dimly lit room all day where they can really understand where everybody is, how to make sure all their first responders out in the field are safe. Um, and then it's also records personnel, the people that submit information to the FBI at, at the end of every month from police departments. It's detectives who spend a lot of time at their desk trying to understand what leads are available and, and how they could potentially close a case. And it's command staff too. I mean, the people that are responsible for saying, I have to make sure that the uh, crime drops in the fifth precinct, or I got to make sure that theft from autos goes down, and we got to manage that. Um, so there's there's a whole span of users that that touch these products, and we try to make sure we put our people in front of every single one. So what does the platform actually do? Because there's multiple components to it, and you just talked about some of the users that get benefit from it. But so so how does it actually all work together? Sure. So there's there's two major components that we have that we build. They're big complex enterprise applications and there's some things that you can kind of, kind of consider add-ons or um, it's kind of tangential products. So the, the first big one is something called CAD, Computer Aided Dispatch. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's using computers to understand for a particular jurisdiction, call it uh, Chicago PD, call it Boston, call it, call it um, you know, Lafayette, Louisiana, it doesn't matter. For that agency, understanding where all of their units are at any given time. So imagine a real-time map with a little dot that for every police car that's in the field or every uh, bike officer that's in the field or every person that's on foot in the field, a dispatcher can understand who may be available to take a call. They can understand which units may have a trauma kit available or which first responders can speak Spanish or just other kind of uh, abilities and things. And you, you can think about fire trucks, you can figure out um, you know, just like fire responders, which ones have ladders that can reach the 30th floor of a building because if you send a tiny fire truck to a big structure fire, that may not be useful for that structure fire at all. So um, it's understanding exactly where the fleet is in real time. Somebody calls 911 and says, hey, there's been a shooting at the corner of 14th and 1st. The dispatcher says, okay, unit 123 is closest to the corner of 14th and 1st. They're available and they have a trauma kit. They get on the radio and they say, unit 123, dispatch to the corner of 14th and 1st. Here's what you're going into. And then the dispatcher is kind of the eye in the sky the entire time, touching base with the dispatch, uh, with the first responder to make sure that they're safe and that they're getting the job done if there's anything they need or if they need to send backup, anything like that. That whole tool is to just manage the fleet and understand what kind of the real-time operations of the department are. So with yep. modern technology, I see how this is all possible. How are they doing it before? So I do have to give credit to some of the existing CAD products out there. They, they get the job done and computer-aided dispatch exists. There are shortcomings though. Um, for example, much of the computer-aided dispatch that exists right now is purely on-premise. So they have all their servers in the basement and if somebody trips over an AC cable or um, you know the, the room floods or something like that, 
then the departments do have to revert and go to walkie-talkie and like post-it notes or or flashcards where you're just writing where this, the unit is and you're handing off these flashcards and it's it's a, it's a crazy archaic model. And there are actually still, shockingly, some agencies that still dispatch purely by radio. You'd expect that for every agency in 2019 that they would have all of their cars inventoried, showing up real time on a map. There are still some agencies in the U.S. that get on a radio and say, hey, where are you? Okay, go. You know, it's, it's somebody just sitting by a, by a phone with a desk and a sheet of paper, effectively. It's crazy. Um, but so the infrastructure isn't really there. And there's so many things that modern technology can allow uh, departments to, and agencies to do right now. Like um, you can use machine learning, artificial intelligence to say, okay, you know what? The closest person to an event may actually not be the best person to dispatch to that event. We know that this event is a fire, so we should make sure that we're dispatching this type of fire truck, or we should make sure that to a shooting, we should always dispatch somebody that has um, some sort of trauma kit or something like that. So kind of this concept of like smart recommendations instead of having to rely on the dispatcher to do it, that would be something that is just kind of low hanging fruit for a lot of uh, agencies to, to latch onto. Um, and the second product, the other main product, you arrive at the scene of the crime, you arrive at the fire, you arrive at the shoot, whatever, you always have to write some sort of report about it. Police officers and first responders are constantly documenting what they do. So if I'm a police officer and it is a shooting, if it's a cat stuck up in a tree, if it's a homicide, if it's a sexual assault, I may have to write an offense report, I may have to write a traffic crash report, I may have to write an arrest report, I may have to write a field contact report. There's a ton of different options and across the US, the information that I have to collect for an offense report in California is way different than the information that I have to collect in Florida, which is way different than the information that I have to collect in Boston. So for Mark 43, we kind of tout ourselves as the TurboTax of report writing. So the report is very dynamic. If you put in information about an arson or you select that you're writing a report about arson, you get asked questions about arson instead of getting asked questions about homicide. The existing world the RMS world is really kind of broken and fractured right now, not to, not to overuse those two very Silicon Valley words, broken and fractured, but um, it's, it's just not in a good spot. It's not in a good place, mainly because the technology seems like it's been built in like the late 80s, early 90s, and it just hasn't improved. So police officers very typically are filling out things that look like PDFs on their screen. And what can they do at the end of the life cycle of the information? They can print out PDFs and that's it. They can't send all the information to their analysts to say, Hey, where's crime going up? Where's crime going down? How should we start allocating our resources differently? Where should people be patrolling more? Where should be, people be patrolling less? Um, and that's not to say that there's not another just whole host of issues that present themselves in courts where you can't prove who attested to creating this information or who didn't create the information. And there's just a million judiciary and, and um, kind of court procedural problems that introduce themselves as well. So both both types of applications are in a bad spot. One, you know, CAD more for kind of like the infrastructure and functionality piece, and then RMS, it just hasn't caught up to where the rest of technology is right now. So yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, just, it's document management, right? But obviously, it's taking that information and making it useful after it's collected. Because, like you said, then uh, if there is a court case and an investigation that follows through, you need access to those records. Yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer. And then the, the final two things that I'll just touch on really quickly that we do, um, we do evidence and property management. So if there's a stolen bicycle, if there's heroin that's found on the ground, if there's uh, shell casings at the scene of a shooting, all those things get picked up, bagged, tagged, and stored in an evidence warehouse. We make a product that you can go around and you can just 
take inventory of those things. You can figure out when those things need to be returned to the owner. You can figure out when those things need to be destroyed. And one of the things that I'm most proud of with these products is that the kind of current way to do it is that if you're in a huge evidence warehouse, which typically are way overstocked, it's really hard to get rid of evidence just because the management practices behind it are just really, really awful. You have to get up on a ladder and you have a laptop and the laptop is connected to a power cord and the laptop is also connected to a serial cable that's connected to a scanner. It's like it's a it's like a work it's like a workman's comp thing, you know, written all over it. Happen, yeah. We are up there scanning on the top shelf and it's a whole it's a whole crazy thing. Mark 43, all of our scanning products are all just on simple Android or iOS phones. You go, you scan, it's it's a much more lightweight thing, and we've kind of taken a an Amazon shopping basket approach to how you scan the evidence, collect the evidence, keep track of the evidence. Um, it's just a much more intuitive way to do it. And then the final thing is a whole analytics suite on top of all of this. So for all of the wonderful information that you're collecting, now your analysts and your detectives and your command staff can actually say, this is how crime is changing. This is where we need to devote patrol hours more intimately. This is how uh, the city has become better because we deployed XYZ um, initiative. And finally, you know, this, this is some information that can maybe help us solve some crimes that we weren't able to before. Okay. So I, I read a blog post mm-hmm. that was actually, I think it was published by Rough Draft Ventures. And I was like, the worst piece of advice I got, it was either from you or Scott, I forget. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, they told us that we couldn't be successful selling to municipalities. So that's the one piece where it's like, you know, this, I, I could see investors being like, you're going to sell to who? Good luck with that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's selling to local governments, like all these areas that people are like, stay far away from. Sounds like a beautiful technology. Think of a different use case. Mm-hmm. So, so, so how did you figure that piece out? So you are correct in that it's not an easy sale. I mean, we, we kind of longingly look at other industries and say, oh my gosh, you know, imagine, imagine something only taking six or nine or 12 months to sell, not, you know, two or three years. Um, but you know, there, there's, there's a whole spread and, and for, for all the reasons that selling to government is challenging and, you know, it can be slow. From an investor's perspective, there's a lot of reasons why it's a really great thing. I mean, the, the contracts that we close with these departments are, you know, five or eight years. We can project out our revenue way farther than a consumer company can otherwise. Um, so it's it's not so much a scary problem or a gross problem or a putting a problem that puts you off. It's just a different problem. And I think, sure, there hasn't been there haven't been a lot of people that have rushed headlong into selling to governments. So maybe that's why there's a little bit of um, skittishness around it. But it's just it's just a different problem to solve. So to your question of how have we learned to sell to municipalities, it's it's something that you, one, just want to bring in as much talent that knows the space uh, to the best of their ability that you possibly can. I mean, we brought in a lot of experts that have sold to government before, have un- understand kind of what the nuances and the regulations and all of the you know kind of complexities of selling to government. It's it's not something where you just want to eat bowls of glass every single morning and you know have to figure it out for yourself and make mistakes over and over and over. And granted, we have we've we've done that. We've we've been through that phase. But I think myself, Scott, and Flo have probably done a good job at saying this person is, is an expert in their field. Let's bring them in and let's let them coach the rest of the company up on how to actually do this. But at the same time, there's a little bit of navigation that happens in each different municipality. And then the final thing is that sometimes it actually doesn't become so much about learning how to sell to the municipality. There's a little bit of education that actually happens that you have to do to the prospect. So um, 
police departments and first responders and a lot of the people that have been thrust into these positions to figure out how to procure a new piece of software or figure out what's best for their agency. The, the nuts and bolts of, of getting the product and procuring the product, that's not their, that's not their full-time job, nor, nor should it be. Um, and it's not necessarily right that they have to go out and you know, try to figure out all these different ways to, to get the job done. So we, we try to tell people, and hey, in California, here's a bunch of um, methods that are approved by the state and, and can you know, ease the procurement and reduce the, the burden on you guys, not have to spend so much taxpayer money on doing this. And you can absolutely maintain the competitive nature, but we just want to help educate you and make the process as smooth as possible. And they generally appreciate that. So um, there's a lot of parties who kind of get their hands on the pot to make sure the procurement goes through. but. It, it's funny just in in what some in an industry where people think it's slow moving and and departments are slow to procure and slow to move and all that kind of stuff the trick is really just being agile and on your toes enough to say okay i got to keep my ears open and my eyes in front of me to make sure that i'm identifying the things that work for the department and the agency and and i can help them kind of through this process because nobody wants to be going through a long 24-month procurement process on either side so um if everybody can row in the same direction, you know, it's, it, it typically ends up in a, in a good outcome. Well, it, if I was an investor, which I'm not, mm-hmm. but uh, I would like to invest in companies that have this kind of um, defensibility part to it, such as, you know, you talk about each location, there's different, you know, parameters of what mm-hmm. is required to fill out a report. So each jurisdiction has their own set of rules. So you need to be an expert. It kind of reminds me of like pill pack, right? They had to get the, you know, authority to ship drugs, to mm-hmm. different states and they had to get licensed in each state. So that was something that another company can't just copy. You know, your company has a very complex technology that they, the municipality is not going to just rip it out and replace it with another up and coming app. It's going to be there for a long time. Mm-hmm. So obviously you've, uh, and you know, you're, you're investors. So you've uh, raised capital from, I, I'm not going to get them all, but it's a crazy mm-hmm. list. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, Ashton Kutcher, uh, general catalyst, spark capital, lowercase capital. So, I mean, there's just this who's who list of investors. So obviously there's a lot of belief in what you're doing. So how did you go about landing such you know, notable investors? I think it really comes down to one thing. Um, you know, for all the crazy stuff that you see in the media about police and first responders and how they handle different situations and things like that. I mean, I, largely, Mark 43 is, and we're, we, we care a lot about the people that we serve, um, but just the general mission of the company is that we're trying to improve the well-being of, of communities, and I guess that's really what it comes down to, and the, the vector that we're doing it in is trying to improve the lives and the abilities for these first responders, and that's a pretty easy mission to get behind. I mean, that for, for all, these, all these investors that have, you know, we're so fortunate to have come aboard, um, it's, it's a pretty easy justification to say, yeah, there's, there's a market that one is underserved from an investing capacity. That's, that's table stakes for them. But, um, you know, even more importantly, there's a bunch of people out there who put themselves in harm's way every way, and they don't have the, the best of the best. I think for most of those investors, it was a pretty easy decision to say, yeah, this is something I'm going to back and, and I'm excited to see where it goes. So what's the current scale of your business as far as employees or whatever, whatever else you can share? Mm-hmm. We have about 160 uh, employees spread out over, I think it's five offices right now. Main headquarters is in New York, but we have some other activity in other offices in Toronto, LA, uh, Charlotte, and Washington, D.C. Um, outside of that, we have about 70 
departments or agencies that are either live or in implementation right now. So the lion's share of them have come in the last two years. So last two years have been pretty um, uh, explosive in terms of growth, and that's been really exciting to see. And the other great thing, too, we, we love any size of department that's willing to work with Mark 43. Um, and we've been very fortunate to get some pretty notable ones. I mean, four weeks ago, we launched Boston, world, uh, excuse me, the country's oldest police department. And that was very cool to kind of come back home to. I mean, with everything started in Harvard, it was wonderful to kind of bring it full circle and bring it back to Boston. Uh, Seattle, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was our first real legitimate client ever. So that was super exciting. Uh, we have a lot of activity in uh, Fresno or Fresno and just California at large and Oregon and Washington State and Texas and New Jersey. So um, you know, things are things are moving and shaking and, and we're excited to see how this year closes and, and what we anticipate to do next year. How'd you come up with the name? The name, uh, it's a funny story. It's a pretty nerdy story. It's it's something that you would expect a bunch of nerds that were studying engineering coming right out of college um, would come up with. So are, are you familiar with, are you familiar with Iron Man and uh, Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. and those movies? Sure. His suit in that movie is Mark 42. So at that time there wasn't any new Mark 43 suit. So we just said, Oh, we're going to be the new iteration of that super complex, you know, technological suit. And we're going to be, we're going to be Mark 43. So it's just, it's a bunch of nerds coming up with comic book references and um that's that's a that's the that's the magic behind the name that's perfect i love yeah, it exactly um so one of the things that you guys have been really successful at is getting um you know a lot of mention in, in the media so you know, a lot of pr sure. uh, which can be a hard thing for companies so um you know the the founders were all, you know, you and your founders were listed as part of you know forbes under 30 list back in 2015 uh mm -hmm. i just you know it's you know it, sometimes, you know, you're not the next great consumer app, right? It's not like you're building Snapchat and everyone wants to talk about the latest, greatest mobile consumer app. Uh, you're mm -hmm. building, you know, enterprise software for police departments. So, mm -hmm. so how have you been so successful getting so, so much, you know, coverage out there? I think it's because maybe it's because the applications are so big or maybe it's because the breadth of either states or types of users that we have using the application are, are so varied and, and, and complex too. We have a lot of topics that just touch things outside of records management for police officers and dispatching a fire truck to a broken fire hydrant or, or something. Um, last Veterans Day, our CTO, who Steve O'Connor, who used to be in the Air Force, he wrote uh, a blog post about things that you should think about when you're hiring veterans and you know some of the great reasons to hire veterans. And we have a lot of veterans that uh, have, have all served in different capacities and love the mission-driven nature of, of Mark 43. And that blog post got picked up in a lot of different places. And, and that was just something that people, I think, kind of seized on, which is interesting. Um, from kind of more the, the company ethos and perspective, this is an industry that has kind of been untouched. And I think I, I like talking internally about solving boring problems. And I think for a lot of people, they may consider records management and dispatch kind of a boring back office problem, but there's people out there, and I think you can see this in the market, there's a ton of consolidation and, and PE and all this other crazy stuff happening in the market right now that kind of corroborates the fact that this is a very interesting hot space, but um, people are kind of taking note of the revolution that went on and again, um, electron, uh, medical records and electronic medical records probably 15 and 20 years ago, uh, combined with the 
evidence-based medicine approach that took place like 30, 35 years ago that kind of started in Stanford. That's very much happening now in policing. So um, group that we work with, the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing, they're bringing way more science into how police departments um, you know, set up their patrols and where should they patrol and why should they patrol there. And I think policing and, and law enforcement is just kind of going through this renaissance right now and people are just taking note of it. So there's a lot of these other threads that people can kind of latch on to and we're happy to talk about it. And we try to be partners with those agencies, with those people in academia, um, just to kind of push first respondership uh, forward as a whole. So you started Mark 43 while you were in college. Mm-hmm. So you didn't come out of school, work a few years or 10 years or whatever, and, and start a company afterwards. So mm-hmm. what has been like, you know, the, you know, kind of the lessons learned or kind of the hardest parts of building a company that, you know, from, you know, just straight out of undergrad or any undergrad even. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the two things that come to me, come to mind all the time that I think about very often, one, everything takes longer than you assume. Humans are really bad at estimating how long things take. So for anybody looking to start a company, they should always keep that in the back of their mind. And, and I'm sure a couple times per week, I still forget that just because I'm, I'm not good at it and still really try to get better at it. Um, but the second piece is that for anybody building a company, especially for anybody coming out of school and, and trying to put something together, the you have to remember the the highs are never so high, but the lows are also never so low. I think we look back on things that we thought were insanely serious problems a year, two years, three years into starting the company. And we think about that now and we consider that just a normal Tuesday afternoon and everybody's very hardened towards it and that's that's no big deal. At the same time, if we are fortunate enough to close a big deal and, and bring on a big agency and, and get ready to serve them, once that announcement goes out, yeah, we're happy about it and we pat people on the back and we say, good job, but we get back to business because you, you just can't rest on your laurels. So um, we have gotten a lot better at, at understanding kind of what the, what the mean is that we have to operate at rather than getting so stuck in the peaks and uh, the peaks and so stuck in the, the valleys. Um, yeah, you just gotta you just gotta stay tempered and stay level and and take the good with the bad and and that's kind of the beauty of of pushing the startup in the right direction. What about raising capital for other you know first time founders that are raising capital? Uh, like, what advice would you share with them? From like a more functional perspective, at any stage of of raising capital, numbers mean something. Whether that's some pain clients that you have already on the application or whether those are clients that have promised to be part of the application you've signed contracts yet even if they're not live <clears throat> i mean the the fundamentals and numbers behind the company if you're raising a million dollars at a seed or you're raising a 50 million dollar round at a d that always matters and investors are there because they're trying to run a business themselves and, and fundamentals matter so um you know don't be scared of of trying to do things that will paint the the fundamentals in a good light and and really prove the the functional worth of your company. On the flip side, you know, throwing all of that out, the story is still something meaningful too. And I remember when we were pitching, we were trying to get into social network analysis and we were trying to build all the cool, sexy technology um, that we thought policing needed. And we did, uh, you know, a year or two out from raising our first round to take a slight pivot and said, no, analysis and business intelligence, those are kind of these tier two applications. The tier one applications uh, are, you know, like collecting the information of the records management, the CAD and kind of the operating system of these agencies. Those are the problems that we really need to solve. But 
that doesn't mean that what we pitched in the very beginning and talking about the problem that we were trying to solve, how poorly underserved all these officers were and all these firefighters or all these first responders were and how big the problem was and, and how detrimental to society it was, that story has stayed the same the entire way through. Um, so it, you know, don't, don't feel like your story doesn't mean anything or that it's not an important part of the picture. I think especially, <coughs> excuse me, I think especially for people coming out of school that may not have had a lot of work experience or may not have much behind the startup just because it's so early for them and they haven't had time to, to build that. Um, sometimes a story is the only thing that you can raise on, but when it comes down to kind of charisma and character and, and building a special team, that may be enough for, for those investors. So, um, you know, do everything you can to be able to close your eyes and be able to recite the story verbatim because that's something that for in Mark 43's case, doesn't matter what products that we built, doesn't matter which direction we've gone, the stories stay the same the entire way through. And all of our investors can say that back on that first pitch, we're still trying to tell the same story and we're still trying to solve the same, same problem. We've just taken different approaches to it over the course of the last seven years. Okay, so this can be um, uh, professional or this could be for fun. So uh, what would you recommend as far as a, a great book or a podcast to check out? Great book or podcast? I wish I had read this earlier in my entrepreneurial company building career, but crossing the chasm is just like such a classic. And I don't know how I missed in the beginning. I don't know. I don't know where it was. And I know plenty of people have heard about this book, but um, it really shed light on how we were selling and how we should be selling to, to governments. I think that we thought that, if we landed a client in the middle of a, if we landed a big agency in the middle of some state, all the other small agencies were going to do exactly what that agency did. And we were wrong in that assumption. Instead, big agencies talk to each other and then small, you know, they talk across state lines and then within states, smaller agencies all kind of talk to each other. So the California small agencies all kind of talk to each other mm -hmm. and crossing the chasm talks about finding that set of customers where, you do something really well, you make them really happy, you are storming the beaches like the Allies did in, in World War II and you have to establish your beachhead. I think for uh, Mark 43, there have been times where you've been a mile wide and an inch deep and that's not what you can do when you have very limited resources of a startup. So I think that really brought to bear um, just some good realizations for the company. So that's one. And then the other thing, I got to give credit to First Round, their blog is amazing. I'm sure yeah. people listening to this have read it, but yeah. I've... I've taken a lot of kind of just uh, a winding path through my different roles at Mark 43 and have, have worked in a lot of different functions. And the first round blog always gives me a little bit of comfort in saying, okay, here's kind of like a, <clears throat> excuse me, like foundational place to learn a little bit about marketing, learn a little bit about project management, learn a little bit about just client management and, and what you can do to best serve a customer. Um, they do an amazing job with that. And hopefully Mark 43, now, now for me in this new role in marketing, um, hopefully Mark 43 can start putting out content that, that holds a candle to a, uh, to what first round has been able to do. Yeah. The first round review, I think they call it the first round review is just amazing whole library of content that just, it's all super deep and meaningful. There's no fluff, you know, and it's all backed by either people that have done it or data to support what they're talking about. So, and it doesn't seem like there's much agenda either. I mean, they're really just there to, to create great, well thought, long form content and it's, it's pithy and helpful. And yeah, it's, I think it's been a real use to a lot of people. So you're super busy building a company, but when you do have time outside of, 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 you know, building a company, what, what do you like to do? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, my first number one thing, I'm, I'm a Chicagoan at heart. My family's back there and a lot of my really good friends are back there. So love getting back to Chicago whenever I can. But if you asked anybody in the office, if you asked my girlfriend, if you asked anybody that is remotely close to me, um, it's probably something to do with food, whether that's like going out to a new cool restaurant that I find particularly interesting or divey or just, just cooking. I love cooking and I, I cook um, as much as I, I can. Um, that's just a nice way to kind of, you know, do some manual labor, if you can even call it that, and just turn your brain off a little bit and just focus on something that isn't, um, you know, software and sales and, and what we're trying to do. So um, those, are my, those are my two biggies. Outside of that, staying active as much as I can. That's something important in terms of balance for any entrepreneur, but um, cooking as much as I can, eating as much as I can, and getting back to Chicago as much as I can. If those three intersect. That's a, that's a really good yeah. Friday evening for me. That's perfect. Yep. Well, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and all the great things you're doing with uh, Mark 43 and, of course, the great advice for other entrepreneurs. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.